welcome to the 56th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're doing another episode focused on practical security practices. We're doing these as a series, kind of loosely, and we'll be covering more and more advanced topics as we go. Specifically this week, we're covering administrative operation users and basic security rollouts for small and medium-sized businesses or organizations. A bunch of people in the operations space see doing security work as kind of punishment, as a, hey, you've you've screwed up something, or you've been bad, or you're too difficult to work with, so we're going to put you over in this little box over here and make you the czar of firewall rules, and you're going to go do security for everything, so you stop mucking with, you know, production. That's Quit not with important is. things. Here's security crap. That's totally the wrong way to look at slash implement deal with security. There's actually a lot of really interesting problems in this space. And frankly, we need some more intelligent, smart, operationally DevOps guys and gals in this space because it's really interesting. I've heard it referred to at times as SecOps in terms of security operations. But yeah, it, it's it's super important and it's becoming more important, not less important as time goes by. I think kind of the basic place to start here is last time we talked about like end user security, but mostly in terms of kind of the regular user. When you are talking about an operations administrator or a sysadmin or somebody who has elevated privileges to things, and they're more technically competent, there's other things you need to start looking at. And that's, for example, using two-factor authentication everywhere possible, not just on your Gmail login or your corporate single sign-on. What you need to realize first is that these people are very sensitive targets for someone to attack or brute force or fish. These are these folks have high-level access and are a much more high-level target than, than perhaps your average user uh, writing help documentation. And almost every major service at this point supports U2F, like Dropbox supports it. Everybody has it. So even if you're just going through this for yourself because you're a high value target, look through a lot of the common services you use, and I bet that 90% of them will fall into the U2F category. Gmail, Google Cloud, Amazon, AWS. All kinds of good stuff. So you new first stop is you're in the cloud, right? Of course you are. Uh, make sure that you're using two-factor authentication on all of your your keys and access passwords that represent humans. Go ahead and buy a couple of YubiKeys. Um, there are ones that are designed to be flush mount in a laptop. There are ones that are designed to be on your keychain. There's USB-C and USB-A ones. So you can find one that, that fits your needs, and they are wonderful devices, as we alluded to last week. We'll have a link to uh, some of the YubiKeys that we recommend in the show notes. Uh, buy one. The model that we've got posted is 20 bucks. Don't buy one. Buy two. Set them both up. Stick one in your safe at home. Keep the other one on your keychain. If you aren't going to use a, um, if you aren't or can't use a YubiKey for any reason at least go to your SSH um, key file. Make sure you're using one of the modern ciphers and not one of the, you know, RCS or, or RCA ciphers or whatever. Um, there's an elliptic curve Yeah, it turns out uh, the RSA is basically deprecated at this point. Yeah. Um, so really, while your YubiKey is in shipment, um, 
we've got another link in our show notes that talks about how to set up the uh, uh, Twisted Edwards Curve uh, SSH keys. And they are quite secure. They are really fast, faster than RSA in some cases, to authenticate and decrypt. Um, and they're short, oddly. I mean, short enough that you could type in your public key off of a printout if you had to. Um, so they're really kind of useful keys. And these are the SSH keys that you should be using everywhere. Most SSH versions at this point um, on most distributions accept these. If your distribution is too old or SSH is too old, look carefully and make sure you're running the a reasonable version of SSH. Also make sure that the passphrase that you're using on your private key, because you are using a password, right? You're definitely using a password on that private key, right? Is using the new format. The old format is basically MD5ing your password and attaching it as a bit of metadata to your key, which makes the password effectively useless. When you use one of the newer keys, you'll get the newer format of password, and it's much, much better. Um, there's also a flag Decrypt. for it that you can pass. So if you needed to re-key, re-passphrase your public key, you can do that pretty easily. Um, so please go ahead and do that, because otherwise, if you accidentally leak your password, your private key into a GitHub repo or something accidental like that, and people that are trying to brute force your, pass, your passphrase, well, the old passphrases are trivial to brute force. So it gives you a little bit more security in case your public key gets exposed somehow. Yeah, the bcrypt um, passwords on your public in your private keys will definitely give you some protection if somebody discovers your private key somewhere. Um, however, some folks believe that having a password on your SSH private key uh, is basically multi-factor authentication, and it's not. Uh, not multi-factor authentication has to be enforced by the server side. And the server, SSH server side can't enforce if you have a password on your SSH key. It just receives the SSH key and checks to make sure things decrypt. Moving along, there are a whole bunch of workstation-specific security guidelines you can go through. I've linked to a, one of them in the show notes by Dr. Duff for OS ten security stuff. And it's things like turning on the host-level firewall, um, setting your root password to something other than, or enabling the root account and setting a password to something other than your main login password. There was a security bug that Apple had a year or two ago where something would try to authenticate and kick itself up as root and then find out that the root account wasn't there, enable it, there's no password set by default, and then you had basically a root user with no password set. Um, it's one of those things where you can go through the guide and it's it's quite lengthy and it gets more and more specific as it goes, but it gives you kind of an overview of if you're paranoid, and depending on what you're doing, you may be, you might need to be paranoid on how to go through a lot of, here's how you obfuscate and encrypt DNS. Here's how you handle file vault. Here's how you, just walking through lots of the basic security recommendations for an environment. And it, there's no use going through it all here, but that kind of guide is, it exists for every platform. They're, they have them for Windows and Linux and everything else. Um, I should read that for Linux because I'm, definitely of the camp that you should be more paranoid than not i don't spend every living moment of free time i have figuring out how to obfuscate and lock down my internal network at my house but but i'm should. paranoid enough that i want to make sure the obvious points are are well taken care of yeah like running your default firewalls that 
deny all traffic by default. I don't usually run servers at the house anymore. Thank you, Google Cloud. Um, so I don't accept any incoming connections. So speaking about connections, the next kind of thing on the list for me is VPNs. And everybody has VPNs and everybody hates VPNs because they generally are a hassle to users. They increase latency. They're hard to configure. They connect and disconnect all the time. And they no I longer... I love it when all my TCP connections reset. Yeah, And they they no longer, in my mind, function quite for quite the same purpose they used to function for. It used to be, here is your secure gateway into work or the network or whatever. So now you're inside the trusted network. And all VPNs do, really all they do, is they protect your traffic in transit from where you are to the VPN endpoint. And the VPN endpoint is frequently inside your work's network stack. But that's all it does. It doesn't give you any kind of magical anything. So a lot of people rely on VPNs as security and it's not. It's it's kind of like saying, well, we can't make we can't enforce TLS on all of our internal websites, so we'll just use a VPN to give us some protection on transport so other people can't attack us while while the data is flowing. That's all it does for you. You take your laptop, you surf on the internet a while, you get it infected with something, you go to work, you log into the VPN, and then your infected laptop is on the VPN. And, well, things go downhill from there. This is kind of why I was saying in the last episode that it's better to keep work on work machines and personal stuff on personal machines because it reduces those risks. Um, it reduces them, but it's it's difficult to fully eliminate the fact that you've got your work laptop and you've opened it up to deal with a, a work-related issue at you know three in the morning because of a page. You came across some nasty and stuff happens, and you brought your laptop to work the next day and log it onto the VPN. So interestingly, um, I have some friends that work for Apple, and Apple has VPNs with RSA tokens and all that. And I have some friends that work for Google, and Google no longer uses VPNs pretty much at all, at all. for their internal for, for access to their quote-unquote internal networks. They rely on hardware tokens and using um, SAML and, and TLS properly, which we'll get to in a little bit, and that's how they do their corporate security for 90,000 users. And if it's good enough for 90,000 users, it's probably good enough for you. But you have to think about it carefully. So I like that model a lot. Most folks are still in the VPN model. And those security models are not trivially changed. So make do with it. Um, VPNs are interesting in that sense. For the love of Jesus or, or your deity of choice, please use an open source VPN. Yes. Please. OpenVPN, IPsec. StrongSwan, any of those. The the thing that I hate mostly about VPNs is you're forced to use this proprietary VPN. You're forced to download this binary package on your Linux box. It's not sign, not nothing. You have to install it as root. What's the difference from being, you know, hacked by somebody with malicious intent at this point? Okay, ranting aside. Yeah, the, the next piece of this is in terms of transport is modern browsers and modern TLS. Um, I have finally gotten myself over saying SSL because SSL is an old protocol and it's it's broken and bad. Um, TLS is the modern replacement of it. 
So everyone say with me, TLS, it's better. TLS. Um, Google has decided that in Google Chrome, they're going to start marking anything that isn't properly TLS secured with a modern encryption suite, like a modern cipher suite, as insecure. So if you're running on plain HTTP, unencrypted, they are marking it as not secure across the top of the banner to remind everybody in the world this is open for inspection. This is good. So you remember when everybody was chanting mobile first, mobile first? I really think we should be going for TLS encryption first. Um, I, for a long time, was of the opinion that, you know, I'm just reading somebody's blog. I'm just downloading somebody's podcast. Hey, Brendan, do you know any good podcasts? Just a couple. Uh, why do I need, you know, to, to TLS and buy a certificate and go through the hassle of, of making sure I've got TLS in the end to encrypt my download of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And it finally dawned on me that it doesn't really matter whose crazy blog you're reading. The question is, do you believe that that blog that you're reading is what the author actually wrote? Can you have any sense of verification that there's not something happening between you and that point that's changing the information you get. Is this my voice speaking or is there no spoon? Further, a lot of content is now moving to a bi-directional communication model. You know, if you're reading on Medium or whatever there's discuss, if you're reading on Facebook, there's a lot of places where you can add comment back in. How do you know that what you're posting is actually getting posted the way you have stated stated it and not being intercepted in the middle and transformed or inspected or recorded by somebody else. So your snarky three o'clock in the morning comment about a movie. Well, you thought it was anonymous, but it actually wasn't. Encryption is good. Encryption um, is good. And thankfully there is a project that was started a couple of years ago called let's encrypt. And it's an open source, not for profit um, project that is trying to get as many people moved over to modern strong ciphers as possible, they're free. You renew them every... Did I say free? Free. You re renew them every 60 days, 90 days, something that relatively quickly as compared to the traditional certificates. Um, but the idea is that you automate the renewal of them so you're, auto you're always getting fresh certificates. You never have an old stale one laying around or one that's good for 50 years or whatever the stupid defaults were. Um, and recently they announced that basically unless you're running a super old version of Java or one of the embedded cons like the Nintendo 3DS or a couple like really, really old versions of Android, um, everything just works now. So you don't have to worry about, you know, browsers and accepting extra things and having your clients or your customers having bad experiences. It just works. And yeah, it's free. Use it. And there's automation for hey, my cert's going to expire in three days. Let's, you know, re-register up the APIs, download the new one. None of the horrific, you have to click through some manual interface designed by people in 1997, uh, swiping your credit card. And that's probably the thing I hated most about dealing with SSH is, hey, it's been a year, got to renew my certificate. They've screwed up the website again, and this is horrible. Yeah, you, you run the tool you use the APIs, you produce your your newly set up certificate. 
or having having to fax to a specific number from your work number that you can prove that you've registered as a business somewhere. There's all kinds of stupid crap around the SSL um, ah, certificate factor authentication. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's that's my little rant on on that stuff. Um, but now that we've covered how to get connected to, you know, said small office or said medium business, how do we reduce the pain on users so it doesn't bother them to use authentication and good security practices frequently? Um, for example, if you have 10 or 12 internal web applications that you have to use for things and each of them has its own login, people are going to either reuse passwords or use variations of passwords that are very similar. Like your Elk cluster or your Prometheus cluster. Maybe you got some Nagios running around. Or the Oracle application that you use to log your timesheets or your vacation stuff or whatever it is. Jira, who uses Confluence? I, I despise Confluence. But anyway, we all have it. And we all have a need for single sign-on. And in the corporate LAN environment, this has been solved for many years by using a combination of Kerberos and LDAP. Um, MIT and, and other smart folks thought of this up thought this up a long time ago, and then Microsoft embedded it into Active Directory. So despite people not really realizing it, most corporates, most corporate citizens have been using Kerberos and LDAP for the past 15 years. And it's great. You, you log into your workstation, and then you have your tickets, and you can go log into other things. You don't have to go log into the file server to map your, your network drives and everything every time. It just happens, and it's, re- it's reasonably secure. Kerberos is an amazing protocol. I have always had a soft spot in my heart. And as far as setting up you know, multi-factor authentication, it's supported basically out of the box, and it just works. Um, but it's... Kerberos is an older protocol, which doesn't mean it's not maintained, but it's lost a lot of its... It's no longer cool. Um, and a lot of people try to reinvent what Kerberos has given us over the years. And there have definitely been some truly good advances, um, but unfortunately, Kerberos just seems to have been left out to to dry. And it's it's we've solved these problems before. We solved these problems decades ago. And now we're seemingly solving these problems again. Okay, I'll stop ranting. One of the biggest downfalls that Kerberos has, in my opinion, is that you have to configure your workstation to use it. You generally have to go in and set your realm and set a couple of other things. And if you are not a savvy user, it is difficult to get it right. And you don't realize why things aren't working or, and you have to go call help desk and it's frustrating. The, it isn't a global authentication tool. No. It, now, it's definitely for your, your corporate LAN, your educational network. So I'll give you that. So if you can restrict your use case to web applications, which a lot of things are moving in that direction, there is a fairly reasonable authentication framework called SAML, the Security Assertion Markup Language, that is designed on a lot of the principles that Kerberos was designed on in terms of proving to a central authority who you are and using that to then grant authentication tokens to log into other sites or other services on the network. Um, and a lot of things support SAML now. There's a Internet 2 consortium project called Shibboleth that is a IDP NSP, so you can use it to roll your own um, SSO solution entirely. I helped with this at a university project a number of years ago, 
it was fairly complicated then. I don't know if it's gotten better, but if you really I want to do it yourself, haven't touched Shipleth in a while. But that's your open source option for running your own your own security service. Then it works, and it works rather well. We were using a university of tens of thousands of students, and it scaled up properly and it handled the load correctly. So it was, it's a well executed protocol and it's a well executed format. Now, if you don't want to run your own, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. We suggest you don't run your own. There are also there are a ton of companies that you can that can, will run this service for you. Um, Centrify, Duo, among others. For things like application hosting, Citrix can do um, SAML. So you can have your, your your Citrix gateway that is hosting your corporate applications properly authenticating correctly. It's it's part of their packages that you can roll out with their things. You can build some of this or all of this on top of your Google authentication or your Amazon authentication to AWS. Google uses OAuth rather than SAML, I believe. And I've done some OAuth work before and OAuth works pretty well. I don't know enough about it to, of how it compares to SAML, though. OAuth was always more confusing to me than the SAML authentication flow, but I'm also not a developer by trade, so I don't have some of the the specifics of it in my head correctly. I think that doing a, an episode focused around the server end of supporting some of these authentication schemes is probably a good thing on our list. Definitely. But at the high level, you have your MFA, um, your MFA SSO, SAML, whatever setup at the entry point. So when a user initially tries to get into your services, you challenge them for, hey, prove to me you are who you say you are. And now that we've, we've established that, as the user flows into the rest of the applications, they, if they go to Jira or Confluence or Workday or whatever it is, They've already identified, identified themselves. So to the user, it looks like I logged into the network and everything is now good and not the first time you log into a specific application, you get prompted and then everything else from there is fine because for the user, it's a lot more confusing. So try to have your SSO flow, SSO flow set up with MFA as early as possible in the contact with the network because this will make the user's experience more consistent. So I want to dig at a point that that confused me in the past, I think probably confuses a lot of other folks as they try to figure out how to implement multi-factor authentication and these additional layers on top of, of what we know and love as as Unix admins, Linux admins. Um, as security becomes more complex, security is, wait for it, its own service, its own microservice in your environment. And once you prove yourself via your uh, FIDO USB key or password or whatever combination of, of authentication mechanisms you're using, that service issues you a certificate that expires. And as you move around the network and use services inside your network, like SSH, um, like web browser uh, logins to to Nagios or to Elk, you present this certificate as your authentication. You can set up uh, some multi-factor authentication stuff with SSH. Um, I've got some show notes included in there, uh, a pointer to a DigitalOcean article, which is always a good read. You can do it 
Google has made it uh, actually relatively easy to do uh, time-based one-time passwords with SSH, surprisingly, or not surprisingly. They're difficult to manage if you're doing them in a large fleet. Uh, it's yet one more thing. You have to have the time-based one-time password secret for each user that you uh, distribute to each machine right beside the user's public key and there's definitely lots of of operational work there that that I don't think we have a lot of of prior art for. I'm sure there's an LDAP schema for it somewhere, but it's not one of the standard ones. That's always kind of been a confusing point for me is SSH in PAM is probably not where you do your multi-factor strong authentication. I know that Netflix a number of years ago, built a service for doing Bastion host SSH into immutable infrastructure kind of stuff where you connect to the Bastion and it generates the keys and does all the pieces. Um, they and, did. And Netflix and is not Lyft a small company. And took that and expanded that. And Lyft is much smaller than Netflix. Um, and that wrapped around multi-factor authentication via uh, for SSH. But again, essentially, it was a method to um, prove your identity to a service, you get a certificate, you present that certificate to SSH, and that grants you access. So it's another way to reduce some of the, the burden and the complexity on trying to invent your own solution. There are there are some, although not as many as we would really like, there are some examples in the wild of how large, you know, customer-facing service, um, or large companies with lots of engineers have rolled out interesting solutions to this problem that you can probably adopt for your yourself without a whole lot of pain, but do take the time to do a security review of it and kind of learn how it works. So you're not stuck at three in the morning driving into the office or whatever, trying to figure out why this thing is broken. Yeah. We'll include some links to some of those articles in the show notes because they're really quite interesting. Um, I've seen at this point, a number of I'll say poor solutions as to how to add multi-factor authentication on top of SSH, including fun things like proprietary binaries. And these solutions actually are really much more elegant. They require some more work up front uh, to develop and deploy the service, but are really very elegant solutions in the long term. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use op- at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 56th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.